This podcast is produced by the Center for Deployment Psychology at the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences. The views expressed are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the Uniformed Services University, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. In addition, references to any specific companies, products, processes, or services does not necessarily constitute or imply endorsement by the Uniformed Services University, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. Welcome to CDP's podcast, Practical for Your Practice. We give you actionable intel to support what you do. One colleague to another. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Practical for Your Practice. I am Jenna Ermold, one of your hosts. I'm joined by the fabulous co-host, Dr. Kevin Holloway. Welcome, Hello. as always, Kevin. Thank you. Good to be here. Glad you have uh, joined today for this really awesome discussion that we are about to have with one of the Center for Deployment Psychology's sleep experts. Um, extraordinaire. I was trying to figure out how to even like up that because Dr. <laughs> Diana Dolan is truly like one of the most knowledgeable folks on sleep you will ever come across in your life. So welcome to the podcast, Diana. We're so excited to have you back. You've, you're, a, you're a frequent flyer. So welcome back. Thanks for having me on. I hope I can uh, live up to those lofty expectations <laughs> you've imparted to listeners. <laughs> right. Nothing like setting the stage. Um, so we are excited to sit down today with Diana to talk about a topic that um, all of us might personally be familiar with, but certainly have worked with clients who may have experienced this from time to time. And that is the issue of sleep deprivation. And one of the things we wanted to start off with is to sort of clarify a little bit what that means, because sleep deprivation gets thrown around, um, you know, sort of in the common vernacular. But but according to sort of a, a sleep expert, what do we mean when we talk about sleep deprivations just to kind of get our definition straight before we get going? This is a great question, because a lot of times when we talk about sleep at CDP, we're often talking about insomnia, right? We have the cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia workshop. We talk about people who have difficulty going to sleep, um, but sleep deprivation is not that. Um, and you can't use the same treatment <laughs> interventions. It's almost like the opposite. So if we think of insomnia as the inability to sleep, think of sleep deprivation as the lack of opportunity to sleep. <laughs> and that could be driven internally. That could be something that someone is doing where they're overscheduling themselves, for example, um, or it could be externally driven. It could be someone's not in a good environment, um, or it could be that someone has external limits on the amount of time they can sleep. I think we've talked about this before too, right? Like when we've talked about insomnia, I, I've heard, I, I know I've heard you and I've heard some of our other experts at CDP talk about really emphasizing that, you know, given a, an adequate opportunity to sleep. And and that's the side that we talk about a lot is the insomnia, given the adequate opportunity. You're saying, okay, now what about those people who don't? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because it's, it's completely the opposite. So it probably makes sense that it needs a completely different intervention as well. So can you maybe provide us with some examples of um, things that happen in life or situations that maybe get in the way of sleep that cause the sleep deprivation? What, what kinds of things are we talking about in that regard? Sure. So it could be something as simple in day-to-day -day life as you want to get up early and go to the gym. So you set your alarm clock earlier. Well-intentioned, right? You want to get more fitness, but now you're only spending six hours in bed. Right. Yeah. Um, or maybe you're burning the candle on both ends and you have to stay up late because you didn't finish work or you didn't finish tidying or what, whatever else around the house. Um, it could be externally imposed from work requirements. You may have really, really long work days and you just 
do not have time to eat or do your laundry. And so you, you cut into sleep. It could be environmental. You might not be in a good opportunity to sleep. For example, in the military, a lot of folks may be assigned to the barracks. Well, the barracks are a terrible place to sleep, right? So you may be <laughs> sleep deprived because someone else has their light on or a movie on all night or something like that, and you can't go to sleep. Um, but that it could range all the way to really uh, more severe conditions like someone who is in um in a crisis situation, right? A natural disaster. So someone who's just been through a hurricane or something like that. Um, how do you handle sleeping in that situation? You're not in your bed. You're not in a safe place. Sleep goes out the window, right? So all of those are actually examples of sleep deprivation. Seems like new parents should be very familiar with this concept too. externally a, imposed sleep deprivation. That's another great example. <laughs> when you've got somebody um, that you're working with, I imagine one of the first steps is to figure out what you're dealing with. I mean, how do you, how do you separate out what's um, insomnia versus what's, you know, a sleep deprivation situation or what, what, where would you start with something like this? Right. That's really key. Um, if you're not sure it's sleep deprivation, you could give them the complete opposite uh, recommendations. So one of the ways that I differentiate is I look at the time the person's spending in bed compared to their total sleep time. For insomnia and sleep deprivation, you're going to see low times or low total sleep times. So person with insomnia, a sleep deprived person may both be getting five hours of sleep. Here's the difference. The person with insomnia may spend seven, eight, nine, 10 plus hours in bed. I've seen it just to get those five hours of sleep. It's broken. It's scattered. A person with sleep deprivation, they may only be getting five hours of sleep, but you can usually see they're probably only in bed a little over five hours, if that. Okay, so it's, it's consolidated and it's, you know, there there's very little time in bed when they're not sleeping. Um, what, I guess, is the problem with it? You know, what's so bad about sleep deprivation that we need to be addressing it as clinicians? Great question. So... We might also wonder, well, what's the problem with getting five hours of total sleep time? Right? Is that a problem? Is that by default sleep deprivation? It is and true that, you know, there should be some kind of functional impairment for it to be problematic. I was going to say that it almost seems like it's sometimes considered like some kind of mark of strength or stamina or you know, somehow a more... I don't know, powerful person who can get by with, with less sleep, almost like, you know, a point of pride or bragging for some. Absolutely. Especially folks in the military. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think that's the challenge. So someone may say, well, I'm just fine with only getting these five hours of sleep. Is this really sleep deprivation or is this really a problem? The thing is over a period of time, if you're sleep deprived, you start to, or you stop noticing your deficits. So when they do cognitive testing and people who are sleep deprived, people will say, I'm fine, I'm fine. And their performance is tanking. Uh -huh. So you don't know what you don't know, if that makes sense. Which and I'm not going to be very, that could be very dangerous, obviously, in, in many types of jobs. But certainly, um, you know, in the military, we don't we don't want people operating heavy machinery and doing some of the jobs that they do uh, in a, if they've been impacted by sleep deprivation. Absolutely. And I'm not going to say there's a one size fits all approach, right? You've heard me say that before. Not everyone needs eight hours of sleep. However, when it comes to sleep deprivation, there really aren't that many 
short sleepers in the population. You know, some people may say, I'm a five to six hour person. There are maybe, maybe at the most one to 3% of the population truly needs about six hours of sleep. So what's the greater likelihood that you really somehow can handle this not getting enough sleep or that you somehow don't realize all the things you're missing? Right. Almost sounds like the, you know, people who are impaired in other ways, maybe, you know, intoxicated or otherwise also don't recognize how impaired they are. You know, I wonder if, is this a similar phenomenon or is this something different? Absolutely. It's very similar. And you see a lot of, I would think, similar cognitive impacts. Mm-hmm. So when you're sleep deprived with folks, you will see um, that their working memory is impaired. Their executive function is impaired in terms of problem solving and ability to make decisions. A lot of times what you'll see is that reaction time drops before you really see some of the impairment. People are making a trade-off as they get more sleep deprived, taking more time, really trying to push their brain to to get things to meet, to, to keep their performance where it was at the beginning. On top of all this, though, they're having all of the, uh, a lot of other psychological impacts like irritability, emotional ability, (laughs) um, you know, feeling, feeling like they're not in a great mood. So it just is compacted uh, in many ways. I I imagine it makes it a little difficult then to kind of assess and address clinically though. If somebody doesn't really see it as impacting them and doesn't see it as a problem and maybe even sees it as... Um, a badge of honor or something that everybody is going through in their unit or, or their workplace. Or the, the special one to 3%. Yeah. They're right? there. And then how do you, um, how do you have conversations with clients about this in a way that maybe gets at better information and data about their functioning and then leads into you being able to support them to either do something about it. And we'll talk about that in a minute. What do you do? Um, but, but how do you have that conversation then um, with somebody who kind of says, no, no, I'm fine. I don't really have any impact. Yeah. It's tricky. I, I will say that in my clinical experience and keep in mind in a clinic, you've got the people who are worried coming in your doors, right? So you have sort of a self-limiting population. The majority of folks that I work with do have some concerns. They're at least willing to admit a small piece, if not a larger piece of, yeah, I think this could have an impact on me. And then we can kind of use that to, to open the door. For folks that are going, I completely don't think this is a problem at all. I might recommend something as simple as my favorite thing, a sleep log right? Tracking for a week or two, along with tracking some other elements of, you know, performance in some way, things that are important to them, mood, what have you. And you look at the relationship between nights they sleep better and nights that they don't get as much sleep. And you you can kind of get a better idea there. That makes a ton of sense. So in terms of interventions and recommendations, things that one can do with the, with these types of clients, um, I, I know that there's sort of a range of, of things that you can address or look, look to give recommendations about um, where can providers start with this and um, obviously any resources as well. So it really depends on my favorite answer. (laughs) If someone has had long-term sleep deprivation, it really boils down to one thing and that is get more sleep. (laughs) You know, I don't mean that to sound sarcastic, but if the problem is not being in bed for enough time, then the solution is how do we find a way to get you in bed more? And, you know, maybe I'm going to 
contradict their fitness coach. Because I may say from a sleep perspective, I want you to shorten your gym time so you can sleep in a little bit longer, right? Or I want you to shift some things that you're doing to your schedule, shift some things in your environment. It's direct problem solving. That's pretty straightforward though, to help them problem solve. And that's kind of assuming that some of those things are at least partially in their control, right? Like, I mean, uh, unlike, you know, kind of operational duties or, or duty shifts in the military or requirements from a boss or commander, I mean, certainly we could, I assume, even advocate for work with, um, you know, uh, folks who have that impact as well. But uh, certainly the things that are within their, their at least partial control, that's where we can start. What about when they can't make those changes? What, what about when that's not available? Right. So then the, so then it becomes survival mode, right? Yeah. They can't make the changes, but we all need sleep to survive. So what can we do to maximize our sleep? So there's absolutely some tips that we can give folks in this situation. I'm going to give the caveat to providers listening, though, that these are not things we want your, your folks doing long term, right? <laughs> this should not be a Band-Aid. So if your patient can expand their time in bed and they're like, hey, just give me strategies to keep this you know, crazy schedule going. I would feel bound as a provider to say, I don't think that's in your best interest. I don't think that's healthy for you, right? But there obviously are going to be folks in situations that they can't do anything about, or maybe it's a short-term situation. You know, they know, I've had patients say to me, hey, I'm going out for field exercises next week for a couple of weeks. My sleep is going to be crazy and then I'll be back home. What can I do to survive this period, right? Yeah. Um, So in that case, there are definitely a, a couple things that we would talk about doing. And the first thing is we talked about the cognitive impact, right, of sleep deprivation. So the first thing is to own it, to know that, to know that in periods of sleep deprivation, you are not going to be performing at your best. So what do you need to do to mitigate that? If I'm a, let me take a military example. If I'm a leader, a commander, for example, I may know that in sleep deprived situations, I need two folks doing a certain task, one to back up the other person because there could be a lot more likelihood for error in that situation or, or a civilian shift supervisor. So I can, I can at least make plans if I know that I'm going to be impaired in that time period. So that's one of them is just to know that things are going to be problematic. The other is to prioritize sleep as much as possible. So let's say that you're in a situation where um, you can only get four or five hours of sleep at night, but you have the opportunity the next day for a nap. Normally, again, if you had insomnia, you all you all know what I would say. I normally say no napping. I'm mean, right? Um, yeah, if the problem is that you don't have a high enough sleep drive, if you have insomnia, don't nap. If you're in a sleep deprivation period or a place that you otherwise can't sleep, take that nap, huh. right? So get that nap. You may need to take multiple naps. Kevin, if it's all right to go back to your new parent example. Yes. <laughs> you know, you may only get five hours of sleep a night. That, but that joke about when the baby sleeps, you sleep. Right, right. Do it. If, even if it's only 30 minutes to an hour here or there, um, to add that up. So uh, prioritizing uh, sleep as much as possible. I and love this more than example. anything. <laughs> I'm sorry. Right? That's, <laughs> okay. that's just a great example of how this is so different from, you know, uh, a treatment you would do for insomnia. It's, it really is that opposite. I want a t-shirt on it. Diana, that says, take that nap. Um, <laughs> you know, I feel like you, we, we heard it here. Uh, so again, I think providers who have been trained in, in CBTI, 
um, this is this would be a very different um, strategy to say, nope, we're going to in this in this short period of time that we're needing to push through sleep deprivation, you're going to grab sleep where you can and add it add it up uh, so that you can get as many minutes as possible. So related to that, well, I was going to ask related to that, you know, I I think one of the things we sometimes also hear too, is that continuous sleep um, is better. I mean, the the broken up sleep is, is one of the things that some people, our clients are, are ourselves um, that can, you know, interfere with restfulness of the sleep. But it sounds like here too, like, look, if nothing else, you know, broken sleep added up is better than not getting the sleep. That's a great way to put it. So, you know, the army used to think if you look at field guides from back in the day, as long as you added up your total number of hours. So, hey, four <laughs> two four two hour blocks is fantastic because that's eight hours and eight hours is more than you need. Right. right. Um, except that two hour chunks are not the same. You don't get the same benefit. So two four hour chunks is way better than four two hour chunks is still better than not getting anything. Right. Yeah. So it's all relative. And then it makes me want to ask kind of the next question too. And I don't, I don't know if this is something you want to even address, but what about like, you know, we, we, we also hear things about like power naps, right? Like you get 10 minutes that can be really great and recharging. And, and if you sleep longer than that, maybe it actually makes you more sleepy. Is that something that would be applicable to folks with sleep, sleep deprivation? Is this kind of, you know, consistent or inconsistent with what you would do with somebody with, uh, with sleep deprivation? That's a great question. And the answer is it depends on what you need to do after the nap. Okay. Um, I, I will say the, the research it really, if you look at studies, there's no clear consensus on how to handle this issue. It can depend on your occupation or what you're doing, or even just the individual. Um, so you'll see various things about longer versus shorter naps being helpful. But we all have a period of sleep inertia after we mm-hmm. get through a sleep cycle. And you all know what I mean, right? It's that feeling of, oh, crap, my alarm went off and I don't really want to be awake. And, oh, there's a light in my eye. You're not going to get that as much with short naps because you're not getting into deep sleep. <laughs> so if you are an airline pilot, for example, and you some sleep is better than none, right? You need a power nap. But you also are in a situation where pretty quickly after the nap, you're going to have to take over from your yeah. co-pilot, then I would say do a short nap, 20 minutes to, to limit sleep inertia. If you have a period of time after your nap where you do not need to be at full functional capacity and you are very sleep deprived, take that hour or two hour nap. Just know that you're going to have a bit of an adjustment when you wake up. It makes a lot of sense. I love hearing this, by the way. This is very validating. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, um, it really is amazing how sneaky you know you can be with some of these sleep tips i almost hesitate saying these to people because folks are going to be like oh how how can i uh gain my own sleep right? right but there's also been studies on when you time the naps and and you might sleep deprive yourself so let's say for example you have uh to get up for a flight the next day is it better to stay up late than go to sleep for a few hours and try and get your flight cuz you were you didn't finish packing or what have you or is it better to just go to sleep, wake up super early before your flight and pack and then go? In, in other Me. words, if you, you could shift I, I the time. I picked the latter. <laughs> Although I hate to say, Jenna, the I'm research wrong. says, <gasps> yeah, the research says it's actually better if, if you have, if you can move that around to stay up later and have your, uh, have your sleep be later in the night. 
there's something about that circadian timing of when it is. That makes sense. So yeah, I mean, if you're going to get four hours either way, it's better to sleep from say two to six than it is from 10 to two. And I imagine too, you know, there's the worrying piece of that. Like if you're packed and ready to go versus you still have to get up and packed, you know, there might be some anxiety as you're trying to fall asleep about worrying if you are going to get up and if you are going to pack versus just getting her done. So that's Absolutely. interesting. All right. I learned, I definitely learned something there, Diana. Strategy. What else? What else do we, um, how, what else can we share with providers if they're working with a client who's really stuck in this sleep deprivation stage for a bit? What are there some other things we could recommend? Yeah. So I have a couple things and then, um, I want to switch gears after that, if it's all right, to talking about managing the daytime, because we so often think of sleep as a nighttime problem, right? Right. It's not, it has a huge impact uh, on our waking hours. So kind of going along with what we were just saying about staying up later, um, sleeping is better for us when it's dark. So if you can, as much as possible, try to time your sleep when it's dark um, and as consistently as you can, right? The other thing that I think is is really neat that folks may not be aware of is there is a concept called sleep banking. And this is the idea. It, it sounds kind of crazy, like, oh, this actually works. It does. It's the idea that if you know you're going into a period of sleep deprivation, for the few nights beforehand, you can extend or try to extend your sleep time up to 10 hours. Research has shown that that actually mitigates some of the cognitive impacts during the period of acute sleep deprivation. So, Kevin, I don't know if it would save your new parents because I'm pretty sure that <laughs> sleep deprivation goes on for what years? 18 and counting. I don't know. I was going to say 16. <laughs> so, I don't know if three nights of getting 10 hours of sleep before they were born is going to do much. <laughs> but that, that, that first is week. <laughs> really interesting. I mean, and obviously, you'd have to sort of know ahead of time. Um, to bank. But, um, you know, if you are, let's say, responding to um, a natural disaster or you're, you know, responding to some other crisis, trying to bank that sleep before you go in, that makes a ton of sense to try and go in at um, with a positive balance in your sleep bank account. (laughs) Absolutely. And you can do the same on the back end. You can do recovery nights. We just typically tell folks, don't let it be more than a couple nights and don't go past 10 hours because then it could become insomnia, (laughs) which would just be terrible to go from one extreme to the other. Right. Walking a tightrope there. Fine line. All right. Is that everything for night? Should we shift to days and talk about days? Sounds good. All right. Hit us. What do you have for days? All right. So days, I think I'd like to take on, let's, let's do controversial topics first. Those are always fun. I think I'd like to take on something big we hear or we talk a lot about, which is caffeine. Uh So I think there's this idea just even in society that we can make up for sleep loss by over caffeinating, right? We have t-shirts, speaking of t-shirts, right? We have mugs with it. This idea of don't talk to me until I have my coffee, right? (laughs) Here's the catch with caffeine. I will tell you. Caffeine can absolutely be helpful for maintaining alertness, right? That's your feeling of being awake. It is somewhat a question, depending on the study you look at, if that actually translates to improvements in function. Uh. So you may feel better. Does that mean you're more of an accurate marksman when you're at the shooting range or when you're um, in a combat setting? Does that mean that you are better able to handle higher cognitive load tasks like decision-making if you're on a mission, something like that? And it may not. 
it really, it really just depends on the study. So know that caffeine doesn't always translate into helping you perform your best. It may just make you feel more awake while you're messing things up. So yeah. when we, we hear stories about, let's say, you know, service members downrange who you know, are drinking a bunch of uh, energy drinks, for example, because they need to stay sharp and alert. Sharp and alert may not be really what we're looking for here. Right. Those, if, they may be two different things, really. They may be alert, but not real sharp. Not so sharp. Yeah. That's about it. Yep. Yeah. Okay. The other catch with caffeine that I think a lot of folks don't realize, so I'm sorry to tell you this if you hadn't heard it, is um, people build up a tolerance to caffeine pretty quickly. So a lot of that benefit, that zing feeling, if you will, from caffeine, we know from studies, maybe about four to five days, you that quickly, you build up tolerance to it. So if you're going to use caffeine in a situation where you're sleep deprived, I tell folks, be strategic about it. Don't use caffeine for a period of time beforehand, if you can. Um, And then we can see if we look at how folks feel as well as performance, those big energy drinks with tons of caffeine, they're not really necessary. To get the kind of benefits we need, we're talking maybe a 200 milligram dose. What does that translate into as far as like a cup of coffee, a can of Coke, a monster, like (laughs) it's not that much. It's a cup of coffee. If you brew your coffee reasonably strong, um, it could be a couple cups of tea or a couple sodas, a couple cans of sodas. So it's really not that much. Certainly your typical energy drinks. And I would think your fun Starbucks, you know, (laughs) grande latte with all of this stuff. Um, I think you could blow past that in one drink. Wow. And so then you're not getting a benefit, but you're getting your body used to the caffeine so that it won't benefit you even more the next time, or I guess it will benefit you even less the next time. So it sounds like if possible, again, if you know this period's coming up, I mean, this is kind of assuming somebody knows I'm about to be sleep deprived, try to wean off caffeine before that for a a period of time so that when you hit sleep deprivation, you can use it judiciously um, in a moderate amount um, and it would have more of a positive impact, you know, or it would help you through that time more. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I would say don't exceed 400 to 600 milligrams per day during that period where you're not sleeping. So it's really not that much. Sorry, Kevin. What other bad news do you have for us, Diana? (laughs) (laughs) I know. So now you're now you're definitely never going to have me back ever again because (laughs) I'm going to call you Doctor Doom, not Doctor Dolan, (laughs) (laughs) the bearer of bad news. Um, So the other the other big thing I would say is light, right? So caffeine. The other piece is light. People do way better with light. People feel better when they're exposed to light, even if they're sleep deprived. So I would say as much as possible in periods of sleep deprivation, when you're in your awake periods, absolutely get as much light exposure as possible. And uh, consider timing when you're doing things. So when you first get that bright light, when you're first waking up and you've gotten some sleep, you're getting light exposure, that's when you're going to do your best cognitively. So I would say, let's say you're in a sleep deprived setting and you have to take a test. I hope this doesn't happen, but you know, it happens. Schedule it for early in the morning, but when the sun is up. Okay. So like front load that earlier on in your day. And when you say light, does that need to be natural light outside light or can it be any kind of light? 
It's ideal for it to be natural light if possible. And the interesting thing about light is it doesn't even have to be the sun. There is way more light in terms of the exposure your body gets on a cloudy day than even a really brightly lit office. So I would say ideally being outside during what would typically be daytime hours. Now, let's say that's not possible for you at all. Let's say you're in Alaska, right? Uh Which happens to some folks. Um, In that case, just get as brightly brightly lit as you can. Um, You don't need to stare into it. You know, people buy light boxes for mood and things like that, um, but you don't stare at them. Just make sure that you've got uh, as much light as you can around you. Fascinating. Um, and I, and we're, we are hopeful to be able to link a handout that goes along with some of these recommendations. Cause I know that was a lot of, um, a lot of specific pieces of things to try and do. Um, we're, we're kind of approaching our time to wrap up and we always hit you know, do the end with our actionable Intel. I feel like we've been doing actionable Intel this entire episode, but I, I I think what we could do for actionable Intel are, you know, if, if providers are themselves are going to be in, in periods of sleep deprivation, because we, we are not, you know, we, we go through natural disasters and we deploy and we do things, um, or, you know, you're going to be working with folks who are any recommendations, um, that, that providers can kind of get a little more training on this or, um, last other actionable Intel items you would want to give before, we wrap up for today? Yeah, great questions. So um, unfortunately, there's not as many resources for sleep deprivation as there are for things like insomnia. It kind of makes sense. We don't necessarily diagnose sleep deprivation. And, you know, Kevin, as you pointed out earlier, it can be a badge of honor. Right. Um, I think military culture is changing. But it's it's going to be slow. It's going to be a long time coming. So there actually aren't a fair lot of resource, a fair bit of resources for sleep deprivation. If you are interested, the Army has released something called the FM seven twenty two, the Field Manual seven twenty two, and they have a whole chapter in there on managing sleep in survival settings. Um, should you have insomnia, this also does double duty as educational <laughs> and uh, hopefully hypnotic. That's great. And I'm wondering if maybe we can even link to that in the show notes yeah. so they would follow up with more information about that for sure. And anything else? I can't think of any any good go-to resources. Hopefully we'll get the handout that we talked about out there. I think that will be good. Um, and folks should feel free to use that with their patients. I gotta say, I'm feeling really good at the end of this episode because i'm like i get to take naps again and but then also i'm like i need to reduce my caffeine so i can be more useful when i need it but uh, some really fantastic fantastic tips and and uh you know guidelines for how to survive i guess uh, you know periods uh, hopefully temporary periods of sleep deprivation so i think every single one of us it's funny like anytime we've gone and done training together diana whether you or i are trained together or you know if we've got sleep as one of the topics in any of our workshops it seems like that's the one that most folks from the audience comes up to us afterwards and says i'm dealing with this myself and so it's it's not just our clients and our patients yes i think it's almost universal for any of us listening um, or participating in this so really really appreciate the tips i'm gonna not just apply them for clients but to myself for sure Absolutely. And Kevin, you actually nailed it. If I had to pick one tip for the nighttime piece of sleep, surviving sleep deprivation and one tip for the daytime piece, it would be what you were just saying. So for nighttime, I would say sleep as much as possible, as consistently as possible. And for daytime, it would be caffeine isn't a panacea. So Mm -hmm. use it mindfully. 
I love it. That might be the title of this podcast. Caffeine is not a panacea. (laughs) We all need sleep to survive. Well, thank you so much for coming back and joining us, Diana, as we we always love having you and our listeners are always very interested in sleep. So I expect Mm -hmm. that if you're willing, we'll have you back again. Um, Make sure you check out the show notes to see the links to some of the resources that we talked about. Um, And we hope that you join us next time on Practical for Your Practical for your practice. I'm going to go take a nap. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to go have a cup of coffee. There you go. All right. (laughs) See you later. Thanks, everybody. Bye, everyone. Bye. Thanks for listening to Practical for Your Practice. Please feel free to subscribe, rate, and join in on the conversation in the comments. Until next time.